0: Hello and welcome to Something Rhymes With Purple, the award-winning podcast all about words and language that I, Charles Brandreth, host with my friend and colleague Susie Dent. We've just celebrated our second birthday here on Purple, so we thought we'd take a look back over the last 12 months to bring you some highlights from the show. Remember, our full back catalogue is still available online. So if any of these clips whet your appetite for more word origins from the worlds of oceans, plants, doctors, pasta, furniture, or anything else mentioned, do go back and listen to the full episodes. As ever, if you want to send Susie and me a wordy question or argue with us, or if you have a topic you would like to discuss and want us to explore it further in a future episode, the address is simply Purple at something That's purple at something, something else spelt without a G, just to be a bit different. On to the clips now. Back in April last year, Susie and I were trading proverbs when a certain historical admiral decided to look the other way. To turn a blind eye, I've always believed this is something to do with Admiral Lord Nelson, the man who stands atop that mighty column in Trafalgar Square now deserted. Am I right?
1: Yes, you are right. I think it's quite well known, this one, but I love it because it's just so literal. I think I've talked before on our podcast about how I love those idioms which you think must be a metaphor, but actually began with really literal origins. This is one of them. So of course, turning a blind eye, we use as a a figurative um, turn of phrase these days, but it does go back to Horatio Nelson, who of course, had one blind eye. And just to condense it really quickly, once during battle, the British forces signalled for him to stop attacking a fleet of Danish ships because surrender looked inevitable. He thought they still had a chance. So he held up a telescope to his blind eye and said, I do not see the signal. So he persevered, he um, attacked and was victorious. So his blind eye turned out to be extremely important. Wonderful. Um, and I just love that.
0: And is he the Nelson of the Nelson Touch? You've heard that expression? Oh, I do
1: What's the Nelson Touch? Oh, about? having the
0: Nelson Touch. My guest touch, but not Nelson Touch. Oh, the, no. well, What's that? the Nelson Touch means something rather special. Oh, you've got the Nelson Touch. Ooh. Now, this, okay. did, did you, when you were at school, play cricket, or have you played cricket since?
1: Um, I used to play French cricket with a tennis back- racket. But I've never actually played cricket cricket.
0: I've played cricket. They used to say uh, Giles scores really well, meaning that I would lie in the long grass keeping the score, uh, which mm-hmm. is how I know that uh, a Nelson in cricket is a score of 111, one, 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 because at the end of his life, Admiral Lord Nelson allegedly had only one eye... One arm and one leg. One, one, one. Wow. That's a Nelson for you. And sticking with the world of water, a life on the ocean wave, a life on the ocean wave. Okay, In our episode, by and large, Susie very kindly rattled off the peaceful, logical and earthside origins of the world's oceans. And you'll be relieved to know I'm not singing in this clip.
1: Oh, gosh, honestly, if we want to talk about nautical idioms and nautical vocabulary, we could genuinely be here for 24 hours, at least, because English is awash, if you excuse the pun, with idioms and expressions from the high seas. So we'll only be able to even, you know, scratch, you wouldn't scratch the surface of the ocean. Should we not be saying
0: dip a toe into the ocean rather than scratching the
1: surface? This podcast is going to be full of the most horrible mixed metaphors. But yes, let's do that because it's a brilliant subject.
0: Can we begin with the oceans? How many we oceans can. are there, and what are well, they well, called,
1: and why? Let's start with the word "ocean" because that's quite interesting. Please um, came from the ancient Greeks, and Okeanos for them meant great river. I mean, it may even be older than the ancient Greeks, but they believed in an earth that was disc-shaped, and they saw the ocean as a single great river that ran around the whole of this giant land mass. Uh, and it was only much later that distinctions came to be made between the different bodies of water. Naming them was, it wasn't arbitrary, it was a really big symbolic thing, but it was kind of informed by lots of different impulses, if you like, whether they were cultural or even personal in one case. So yeah, should do you want me to to run yeah, you through this? Please, them?
0: please. Well, Can we start the- with the Atlantic?
1: Atlantic, Orange. yes. That was named after the Atlas mountain range in northern Africa. And of course, they were in turn were named after the the Titan who supported the heavens that you will still see on the frontispiece of old atlases. don't know if modern ones have them, I don't think they do.
0: So Atlas was a character in Greek mythology?
1: Greek mythology. And he held up the heavens. So you would find on the flyleaf of old atlases, my school atlas included a picture of him holding
0: up and he yeah. is a virtually naked person wearing a little loincloth who yes, is has got his arms it. in the air and he's yeah. he's supporting the globe
1: yes remember i went uh, to a convent so you know a little went a long way <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's the atlantic the indian ocean is obviously just based on its topography and india itself is named for the indus river what else have we got pacific pacific is lovely i love this one have you heard of the magellan straits i have Yeah. Well, they were named after an explorer called Ferdinand Magellan.
0: Yeah. And And apparently not all his sailors were. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, in around 1520, he was searching for a route through to the Spice Islands, because of course, the Spice Islands were the, the source of all these wonderful, exotic treasures that were being imported back to Europe. And he was to kind of found what became known as the Straits of Magellan, where he, is, he and his fleet, they experienced really unpredictable winds and currents that wasn't easy. And then they passed into the open waters of, I think it was known at the time as the Sea of the South. Um, but he was really struck by its serenity, really. And so he, led, he it led him to name it Mar Pacifico, the Tranquil Sea. So Pacific mm. is linked to pacifist. It means peaceful.
0: Lovely. What about the Arctic?
1: Arctic. Okay, this was named after the great bear, the Ursa Major. The Greek word for bear is Arctos. And Arcticos meant northern or literally of the great bear um and so what? the antarctic ocean is the not bear if you prefer
0: <laughs> and that is why teddy bear enthusiasts are called octophiles. octophiles exactly octo means bear and ant what is the ant in antarctic
1: opposite so antipathy uh, antipodes all of that means the opposite so the antarctic is opposite north or opposite
0: bear Very make good. sense yeah i get it good and what about ant and deck can <laughs> you do with them? That <laughs> stands oh, okay. opposite deck, of course. Very
1: good. Um, Mediterranean. That's the, the the other one. Mediterranean means sea in the middle of the earth. Um, oh, so, Medi, Medi- and
0: Mediterranean. Yes. And do we know what the difference between a sea and an ocean is? Because the Mediterranean is a sea, isn't it? Not an ocean.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm going to look this up because I don't have a ready answer for that. So I'm looking at the Oxford Dictionary now. And sea it says the expanse of salt water that covers most of the Earth's surface and surrounds its land masses. Um, And ocean hear me tapping away, a very large expanse of sea, in particular, each of the main areas into which the sea is divided geographically.
0: Well, so all the water is sea, but specifically there are oceans to designate where they are. Exactly. And some, some parts of, that are not as big as oceans are called seas. We got it's a you specific
1: there. designation, yes. Being out on the water for that long sure can build up an appetite. Food has been a big part of purple in the last year, whether it's armies marching on their stomachs or Italian generals scoffing biscuits. But nothing is quite as bizarre as Giles' own culinary tastes.
0: Do you believe him? My tradition is baked beans on toast. And, uh, but <laughs> during good. lockdown, I've tried to simplify. Also, I'm trying to lose weight, so I'm trying to cut back on the carbs, so I've abandoned the toast and okay. so i just have the baked beans heated in the microwave but i'm thinking that's maybe a, a, an excessive use of electricity so i'm just having cold baked beans that is a uh, kind, there's almost neurotic charge can i say it's so delicious and because uh, i can't stand the washing up did you, did you, i'm eating out, out of the tin
1: no i don't believe I, this i i'm for eating the baked
0: beans out I of the tin i'm this. using a fork or a spoon because i discovered you cut your lip if you try ah, and eat drink and This straight is
1: rubbish. From. It this rubbish. is rubbish. Purple people. Yeah, I don't believe it. It
0: is rubbish. Keep life simple. I'm getting back to basics. I do do my other dish. I used to be when I was a <laughs> fish eater, I used to love a fish finger sandwich.
1: Oh yeah. Two slices no, no. of bread. No, no. Oh no, oh, no butter. Or oh, garlic mayo. You need garlic mayo. Oh. How have we got onto this?
0: Well, because we we are trying because every novel this is to help you with your novel. If you think it's getting a bit flat, put in an eating scene. That's what all the great okay. novelists do. Put in a, you know, describe the crumpets oozing with butter. Describe your tarragon chicken. I've already discovered crumpets, actually, this lockdown. <laughs> yes. oh, I, 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 yeah, anyway. Said, there's not been much crumpet in my, I can tell you, in my life during <laughs> lockdown. Never mind. It's all true, Susie. And there will be purple people out there screaming their smart speakers in agreement. Wherever you are in the world, there are a few culinary pleasures quite like some cold baked beans straight from the tin, or can. Give it a go, and you can thank me later. But on leaving the kitchen in this same episode, we went on a lovely walk through the garden to have a good look in the borders.
1: Well, I thought I would start with flowers that are kind of shot with threads from mythology, because there are so many beautiful legends attached to um, the names of flowers so the iris for example is a nod to the messenger of the gods personified by a rainbow but there's the hyacinth as well hyacinths are so highly scented aren't they can be a bit cloying sometimes but quite beautiful when they when they're fresh and that also got a really darkly beautiful tale behind it it goes back to hyacinth the handsome smart spartan prince who was lover of the god apollo Um, son of Zeus. And he he was so handsome and he had many unsuccessful suitors, including the god of the south wind, Boreas, and Zephyrus, god of the west wind, who gave his Zephyr, of course, or Zephyr. But his star-crossed relationship with Apollo is the one that kind of really counts. And it had a tragic end because during a game of discus (laughs) one day, Apollo threw the discus high into the clouds and Hyacinth ran after it, probably hoping to impress him. And the spurned Zephyr, the, the god of the wind, blows the discus off course. In other accounts is a bit of a kind of un, unfortunate ricochet, but I think it was Ovid who, who thought this was a very deliberate action by the god of the wind. And anyway, the discus kills the young Spartan, leaving a grief-stricken Apollo behind. And it's said that from hyacinth's blood, Apollo created the flower whose name we still know today, and inscribed upon its petals the lamentation, I I alas and you can still see if you look at the markings on a flower you can still see almost make out those words uh, which is just beautiful
0: hyacinth so the original hyacinth was a bloke so poor old hyacinth bouquet (laughs) she's named after a bloke
1: Yes, although it's funny because the Greeks associated the myth not so much with a hyacinth, but with a, a gladiolus, which also have really distinctive leafy markings. But anyway, it's a, just a beautiful story of a, a fallen hero. And it's a much better name than the more prosaic word, another name for, for the hyacinth. This is what we used to call it, Croto. toe Goodness. You can't really make any poem out of that, can you?
0: A Croto is a hyacinth. And you're telling us that hyacinth, the flower, is named after this young... Greek personage, the handsome Spartan prince who had a thing with Apollo. And it all went wrong. This could be why Oscar Wilde, who I'm thinking about this year because this is the 125th anniversary of his imprisonment in 1895. Oscar Wilde, in the letter he wrote in Reading Jail, De Profundis, out of the depths, he wrote a letter to his erstwhile a boyfriend, Lord Alfred Douglas, and he spoke about the relationship between Hyacinth and Apollo and likened his relationship, uh, Oscar Wilde's relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas, to the relationship between Hyacinth and Apollo. And now you're telling me that this is a doomed relationship that ends in tragedy and blood being spilt. Yeah. Two-six-peak. That peak. makes
1: sense, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: 2 6 peak? Absolutely. Very good.
1: And from the Greeks, we stay with the classics to remind ourselves of the lovely explanation behind that weird squiggle people use instead of writing and.
0: And people now use an ampersand instead of writing out the word and. Is that right? is an ampersand that funny yeah. eight looking figure like an eight?
1: Yeah, it's, it's like known. if you think of M&S, between M and S. I think there are m and well, in, in across the world now, so hopefully people will know what we're talking about. The shop. name. It's a name, store. It's yeah, a store. You will see the ampersand. And um, and that, why is it called an ampersand? So the ampersand is lovely, actually, because it goes back to the late 18th century when kids were learning their alphabet. And they'd hold up these paddle, they were called paddle books. So they were these... Um, Basically, arrangements of letters on this big tablet that would have a handle, and they'd hold the handle. The tablet would be covered with this kind of transparent horn of an animal. It was called a horn book, and they would learn their alphabet, have to recite it off by heart again and again. And at the end of their alphabet was the symbol we know today as the ampersand. But they would read it because they would just, you know, they were probably really bored, and they would read it by rote, and it would go. And by itself is and, but they'd say this in Latin, which is per se, um, and per se, and, and per se, and, and per se, and, and per se, and, and that eventually became heard as ampersand.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: I know. It's interesting. But the symbol itself is based on the Roman shorthand symbol for the Latin et, and. So there you go. Next time you're in MS or b q or for our American contingent you're making a call on AT&T, you won't forget the and per se and. Obviously there's been a lot of medical news over the past year, but in July, Giles and I walked the halls of medical terminology to uncover the dark humour running through much of doctors' lingo.
0: When you were with them, because you spent time professionally with them when you were doing your thing on on tribal language, how different groups have a way of speaking one to another, a kind of an inclusive way of talking so that they understand one another. And it's a way almost of keeping outsiders out. What did you learn from the doctors? How did they talk? Why was their speech different from that of other mortals?
1: Um, I don't know if it's particularly different apart from the strain of dark humour that runs through everything. And, you know, quite rightly so. And a lot of it is jokey. And, you know, you only have to go online and you will find pages and pages and pages of silly acronyms for things that doctors use, many of which I think are apocryphal. But ones that I came up with um, were OAP, for over-anxious parent. Definitely recognise that one. P A D E. Paid, I have actually seen that on uh, on a set of notes, pissed and denies everything. Um, <laughs> and according to Phil Hammond, who regularly comes on Countdown, there's also teeth, T-E-E-T-H, which means tried everything else, try homeopathy. But, you know, the people, they call themselves... By different terms, and and you can see this if you've ever read Adam Kay's brilliant. This is going to hurt. You you will hear some of these as well. So the bonehead is the orthopedist, otherwise known as an orthopod. You've got the fanny mechanic, who's the gynecologist. Good grief! Um, the Lancelot, apparently one who. Sorry about this. One who drains abscesses. Um, and are known in the US as a Pokemon. Then you've got millions of different versions of things like NFB, which is normal for Banbury. Mm. Um, that kind of thing, you know, depending on where you are. Shadow Gazer is a radiologist. The Rear Admiral is a proctologist. Bones and Groans is the general ward. The Stream Team, the Urology
0: Department.
1: And Ward X, rather darkly, is the morgue.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's not where you want to go ever. That is a bit grim. Ah, good it's afternoon, Mister Brandt. I'm afraid your mother has been moved toward X. Oh dear. <laughs> dear, dear, um, dear. And
1: then you've got PFO, piston fell over, Smurf sign, a patient who felt who goes blue, VIP. I've seen this one as well. Very intoxicated person. That's quite mm-hmm. a regular one, I think. Oh, and so it goes on. There's a, a lovely one again. I don't know if this is true, but acute neuroencephalopathy. Neoencephalop- for an airhead <laughs> I <love it. laughs> their knowledge of medical terminology is second to none but they they clearly have to have this own, this kind of shorthand in order to relay what type of patients we really are as always we've received thousands of emails and tweets from the purple people over the year and we love answering as many of your questions as we can so please do keep them coming to purple at something else.com or you can find us on twitter at gilesb one
0: or i am at susie underscore dent What is the origin of cockroach? What's Mm. the cock doing there? That's another Twitter query.
1: Yes, there is no cock in cockroach. This is one of the ones where we couldn't get our mouths around a foreign tongue. Remember the Jerusalem artichoke that has nothing to do with Jerusalem and goes back to... The French girasol, a sunflower, because the artichoke is in the sunflower family, because we couldn't pronounce it with We said, oh, it sounds a bit like Jerusalem. We'll call it that. And it's the same for the cockroach because it comes from the Spanish cucaracha. I can't, well, my Spanish is not very good. Cucaracha. So C-U-C-A-R-A-C-H-A. But because we couldn't pronounce that, and it's, I've just given you ample illustration of that, we changed the spelling because it sounded a bit like cock and then roach even though a roach is a freshwater fish and it doesn't look like a cock.
0: Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we are. You've led a fairly sheltered life. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah, I've not, yeah, not seen the right ones.
0: Right. The water has boiled, so I'd better get the pasta into the pot. But will I go for spaghetti, linguini, fusilli or farfali? What do they all mean? And am I pronouncing them correctly? Join me in just a few moments to find out. Oh, golly, would you pass me... The Parmigiano. What do I mean, Parmesan? Oh, dear. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with the seven every weekday. So follow the seven right now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple, where this week we've thrown open the archives to bring you some of the best bits of the show from the last 12 months. That break has given me just enough time to get my pasta cooked, because I like it al dente. Uh, Susie, have you any ideas on how I should serve it? Spaghetti. Have
1: you ever had spaghetti puttanesca? No. Spaghetti puttanesca is absolutely gorgeous as well. So, this is a sauce with garlic. Black olives. I'm not a huge anchovy fan, but you can put anchovies in there as well. And tomatoes. And it goes back to the Italian puttana, meaning prostitute. So it's linked to the French putain. And the sauce is said to have been created by prostitutes because it could be cooked very quickly between clients' visits. Spaghetti puttanesca. And it's interesting that there's so much of that kind of thing behind English words like fornicate. One theory is that it goes back to the Latin fornix, meaning oven, and it said that prostitutes would gather at night by the ovens in ancient Rome in order to keep warm, and then of course that became linked to their trade and, you know, and and fornication. But that that's one theory. I mean, it's it's not completely you know set in stone, but yes, it's the idea of an arch, and the ovens were often arched and vaulted chambers and then later that became associated with brothels so there you go just thought i'd throw that one in
0: but i think that's completely gripping this is why yeah. i love this program i learned things <laughs> fornication it never occurred to me that it would be to do with ovens no. and, in brothels and the poor prostitutes keeping themselves warm before they had yeah. their what was it again that pasta was called Putanesca. puttanesca putanesca. 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 Mm. Puta being prostitute as in puta. puta
1: yes puta. exactly
0: very good Give me some other ones. What about, i tell you what I do like. I like linguine.
1: Yes. Oh, that's a nice one. Linguine means little tongues. So it's linked to oh. linguist, language, all sorts. Ta- tagliatelle? <laughs> tagliatelle means little strips. So tagliare in Italian is to cut. So it almost looks like you're cutting ribbons, doesn't it? And in fact, that's what fettuccine means. Fettuccine means little ribbons as well, which is quite cool. Fafale, which is a favourite here as well. Fafale, they look like little bow ties, don't they? Mm. But actually they are uh, originally butterfly shaped. It goes back to the Italian for butterflies, fafale.
0: Ah, what about fusilli?
1: Fusilli. Those are the ones that look they're slightly corkscrew shaped and it goes back we think to the Italian fuso meaning spindle. So little spindles is the idea there. Penne which I think is probably the most popular pasta isn't it? Penne mm-hmm. goes back to penne meaning feather. So Little feathers, I think it is. And actually that then is related to the pen that we use to write things because, you know, of course they had quills. And also if you're penate you have feathers, etc. So yeah, penate meant quill originally or feather. And
0: penne is with
1: two ends. Pen is with two ends. So not like the pens that we write with. Gnocchi is a nice one. Do you like gnocchi? I discovered no, those when in Italy. I you don't, don't like, like
0: gnocchi. Okay. Is that the one that's got it isn't really a pasta, it's a made of a different sort of potato. Yeah, they're type made
1: from potato thing. often yeah. or semolina. So they are more dumplings. Yeah and those go back because if you think of their shape it goes back to the italian nocchio without the g meaning a knot in wood so you know you get those sort of walls w-h-o-r-l-s in wood gnocchis are sort of slightly shaped like that the knots that you would find in a grain of wood baked beans is a yes and gnocchi is a no useful to know for the next time Jars and i are able to record in the same location again and it's my turn to cook lunch Regular listeners will know that whatever the topic, Giles has a word game or a quiz question up his sleeve just to keep me on my toes. And our surging around the streets of London was no different, especially when we arrived in Giles'
0: neck of the woods. I love Chelsea. One of the parts of London I was brought up in was Chelsea. Yeah. Part of my love of Oscar Wilde comes from the fact that he lived in Chelsea, not far from us, in Tite Street. I lived for a while in Oakley Street, opposite mm-hmm. house where Lady Wilde, Oscar Wilde's mother, lived. So I walked the streets of Chelsea as a child, and I used to get my hair cut at Harrods. Looked there were children's hairdressers at Harrods next to, not the toy department, but to the zoo. Harrods had a zoo and pet shop in the Seriously? 1950s. Seriously. Wow. And you would go in there, and you'd get your hair cut, and then you'd go around and you'd meet the turtles and the monkeys and the snakes Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. Anyway, the point is, Harrods is near, and the tube station for it is, Knightsbridge. Yes. Why is Knightsbridge a unique English place name?
1: Uh, Well, oh gosh, is this my quiz quiz question? That's
0: your quiz question. And please, purple people, see if you can answer it before Susie Dent does. Knightsbridge. What is unique about the name Uh, Knightsbridge? Why uh, is it the most remarkable name of any place in the English language? Knightsbridge. Mm. Just look at the word. K-N-I-G-H-T-S-B-R-I-D-G-E.
1: Don't know. What's
0: special about it? Let me reveal it. Okay. It's the one name that has in the middle of it six consecutive consonants. Oh, of course. Isn't that extraordinary? (gasps) G-H-T-S-B-R. Oh, I love that.
1: I know that the name is possibly based on the fact that there was a bridge there that may have been used by the knights and the ladies, the wealthy people, the aristocracy of London. That's one theory for it. But oh, that's a really good one. And I should know that as a linguist. Thank you for that. Can I tell you about Charing Cross? Please. We've mentioned Charing Cross before, I think, because it's just such a lovely, has such a lovely story because Charing goes back to an Old English word meaning a turn or a bend, either referring to a bend in the River Thames at this point or the bend in the old Roman road that existed. But the cross refers to the Eleanor Cross erected here and in several other places, actually, by Edward I to commemorate his first wife, which was Eleanor of Castile, and her funeral procession went from cross to cross. So it's got a lovely story of love behind it, Charing Cross. Sorry, can you hear my radiators creak?
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's it's your radiators, is it? I thought (laughs) it it was your brain (laughs) slowly coming to life. Yeah, or, or slowly going back to sleep again. Am I right in thinking that people think that the centre of London is Charing Cross? So, when you see a sign when you're approaching London yes. uh, on whatever motorway it is and it says seven miles to central London, it is seven miles to Charing Cross.
1: Absolutely right. All distances calculated from there, which is nice.
0: Susie's radiators rudely creaking away in the background there. But that's been some of the joy of recording remotely at home during the lockdowns we've all been part of, wherever you are in the world. We've been heckled by posties knocking at the door, online grocery deliveries, cats on the keyboard, and even my wife doing what sounded like an Irish jig in clogs in the room above me. But it did get me wondering, where does the word heckle come from?
1: Should we ever talk about the, no. the um, origin of heckling?
0: No, I've been the victim of it in my time. I want to hear the origin.
1: It <laughs> was really strange. It takes us back to the kind of legalisation of trade unions, I guess, in the early 19th century, when, you know, growing numbers were joining the fight for better pay, better working conditions, etc. And, and sort of unlikely byproduct of trade unionism is, in fact, heckling, because it's said to have originated with a particularly vociferous vocal, shall we say, union in Scotland. And what happened there? It was a heckling shop. Now, a heckling shop was a place in the textile industry where knots and dirt would be removed from flax or hemp fibres. So this is before the process became mechanised. And a heckle, or a hackle, as it was also called, was a steel comb used for smoothing out this knotted material. And one such heckling shop in the Scottish town of Dundee was incredibly ill-ventilated, really unpleasant, you know, backbreaking work. And in fact, Robert Burns was among those who carried out this hour upon hour of heckling in the establishment. And apparently... By 1880s, these people had had enough in the heckling shop and they established a union to fight for better conditions. Using their strength in numbers, it said they did a fair amount of shouting and they got a reputation for activism. And it's through that link with the heckling shop where they were combing out textiles and fabric and their kind of you know shouting for better working conditions that heckling transferred over into this idea of shouting and clamouring for for their voices to be heard. Whenever I wonder, will Charles have an anecdote for this topic? The first phrase that often pops into my head is, well, is the Pope a Catholic? And in this clip, those two worlds collide. But you might not want to look up. Litter is another one. Can you guess what word might be behind litter?
0: Litter. Well, I do know, having a love of carry-on films, one of my favourites is the one set in the French Revolution where Kenneth Williams, I think, plays Le Grand Fromage, the big cheese. And I think he's brought on in a litter. It's a kind of yeah. like a, a sedan chair. What, mm. Why is it called a sedan chair? You can tell me that because it comes from sedan, I suppose. You sit it in a box. From,
1: no, it comes from sedere to sit. So ah, it simply goes back to that Latin fine.
0: root. Fine. Yeah. So it's a chair, a sedan chair. You're sitting, well, it's actually tautological, isn't it? It's two words. Lying on it, really. Yeah. yeah. So, you're sitting in a chair and you're carried in. And that was sometimes called a litter. The Pope, mm. when he's crowned and comes into St. Peter's Square, he is carried on a litter, isn't he? Yes. The guys with big big biceps have <laughs> carrying him and his chair is on top of a platform, which is carried along. That is mm. a litter.
1: Yeah, think of your French here, because it goes back to the French "lit" meaning a bed. And it's actually a fairly sad story in that it looks back to people who couldn't afford proper beds, so would make them out of straw, paper, whatever they had handy. And that would be then discarded the following day because it would be considered soiled, which is where we get the idea of litter being rubbish. But ultimately, it goes back to that idea of, of a bed. And when we talk about a litter of puppies... It is the idea, again, of sort of lying down and, you know, and just sort of curling up, I suppose, and then giving birth from that point of view. But it's all to do with lying down and beds.
0: So you're lying down on a bed, and when you were brought in on a litter, it meant you were like a kind of Roman emperor. You'd be lying back on your bed, and the bed would be carried into the room. Yes. And the litter on which the Pope sat or was carried in once he'd become Pope, the reason... That I'm conscious of it is I do remember there was controversy hundreds of years ago when they thought they'd elected uh, somebody who turned out to be a woman, Pope Joan. Do you know about this? Wow! There was briefly a pope called Pope Joan, and she was female, and but she was actually elected pope, so she must have been a cardinal, and they made her pope. They didn't want this to happen again, and so what they did, whenever a new pope was elected, and we're going back to pre-medieval times, they would put the Pope on the litter in his papal robes. And uh, they would carry him in. So he was, as it were, above. He was being held up. And there would be a hole cut in the bottom of the litter. And the cardinals would walk underneath the papal litter and gaze upward at the Pope's nether regions to make sure oh, that it wasn't a woman, that oh, it was a man. And as they would go under, they would say, each. they would stop, they would gaze up. And they would say, in Latin, of course, testiculus habit et bene pendentes. Oh my goodness. He's got them and they're hanging nicely. And then they would walk on. And that's how they would know that the Pope was a bloke. And it was all thanks to the papal litter with a hole cut through the middle of it. What an extraordinary story. <laughs> anyway, that's the joy it's of language. Great. It takes you to places that one would not think of.
1: Now Giles is in full flow, it would be remiss of me to exclude from our Best Of episode one of the finest name drops in Purple history, featuring old Blue Eyes himself.
0: Did I ever tell you about being in the wings at the Royal Albert Hall with Frank Sinatra? (laughs) I remember. No. (laughs) Well, I was sent to interview Frank Sinatra on his last tour when he came to the Royal Albert Hall to sing. And he was quite an old man by then. And they explained to me, you're going to be talking to Mr Sinatra after the show. But you can stand in the wings to see him go on. But uh, you mustn't come within 10 meters of Mr. Sinatra. He concentrates before going on stage. So you can stand there, but don't go within 10 meters of him. Is that understood? So I stood in the wings and Sinatra arrived in the wings, about to go on the stage. The orchestra was already playing the come on music. And there was Frank Sinatra looking exactly like Frank Sinatra. It was incredible. He was shorter, I suppose, than I imagined, a bit Mm. stockier, but it was Frank Sinatra. There was something electric about him. There was charisma. Yeah. And I thought, this is amazing. And then I realized that he didn't have any trousers on. He was standing there (laughs) in his shirt, wearing a bow tie, but in his shirt with boxer shorts. Mm. And I think what the Americans call suspenders. What we would call, you know, no, no, um, they'd keep keeping his socks up. um, Oh, okay. uh, Okay. Things to keep his socks up. So he was wearing shoes and socks. And it's not particularly sexy no, image, exactly. is uh, Well, the music was playing, and he was moving towards the edge of the stage. I thought, this man's going to go onto the stage at the Royal Albert Hall, thousands of people there, and I'm the only person here in the wings. This poor man is going to go on the stage in his underpants. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe he's older than... You know, he's older than... I. I oh, good. Has he gone a bit? Has he, got, has he lost it? Is this going to be the most humiliating moment in Frank Sinatra's life? And I thought, I cannot let this happen. And literally, as he was about to walk onto the stage... I'm afraid I decided I had to stop him. So I began to walk towards Frank Sinatra, ready, if necessary, to do a rugby dive to prevent him (laughs) going onto that stage. And as I was about to throw myself upon him, two minders lifted me out of the way and Frank Sinatra's dresser stepped towards Uh. him with trousers. He stepped into the trousers, he then put on the jacket and he turned towards me and he said to me, Those guys out there have paid a lot of money to see me. I wear a new suit for every show I ever perform.
1: Wow. They deserve
0: the best. They paid for it. They're going to get it. And then he walked on. Wow. It was amazing.
1: I'm more impressed that anyone can actually put on a pair of trousers whilst wearing shoes.
0: You're right, Susie. And with all that dexterity, it's just a surprise he didn't record more soul music. Get it? Soul S-O-L-E, as opposed to S-O-U-L, forget it. That's nearly it from this rummage through the Purple Archives. But before we go, here are three wonderful words to take with you this week. You heard them before, back in September. Can you remember any of them?
1: OK, so if you were a thermopot... I don't know if you remember, I mentioned theist, which obviously means devoted to a god, but which has a secondary meaning of addicted to tea drinking, as used by Shelley of himself. If you are a thermopot, you are a drinker of hot drinks. So that one will encompass coffee drinkers as well, which I quite like.
0: who don't want their coffee, Luke.
1: Exactly. Absolutely right. You are a thermopot then. So, policitation... Ooh. This is P-O-L-L-I-C-I-T-A-T-I-O-N. A solicitation is an offer made, but not yet accepted. So if you've invited your friends around and they might be waiting for a better offer, they have taken your solicitation, but haven't yet
0: responded. Oh, solicitation. Very yes. good.
1: Yes, I like that one. And um, OK, so then the other one, remember last uh, in the last programme, we talked about a lance corporal Yes. And how it came to it w- went back to someone who had worked so hard, and who had seen such battle that their that their lance was broken, and mm-hmm. showed the life that they had led. Well, it actually comes, it does come from that. But the original word was a lance presado, so it's L A N S. P-R-E-S-A-D-O, a lans Prasado, which occurs in a seventeen thirty six dictionary of Thieves Slang, where it's defined as he that comes into company with but two pence in his pocket. In other words, it's the person who turns up in the pub and accidentally has forgotten their wallet.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: A lance presado.
0: How do we spell it again?
1: L-A-N-S P-R-E-S-A-D-O.
0: I know quite a few of those. Lance Prasado.
1: <laughs> yes. And there are certainly a couple of lands Brasados lurking in this list of credits I'm about to read out. Because that's all we've got time for on this trip through the archives. Join us next week for more wordy wonders and confusing clichés. But until then, Something Rhymes With Purple is a Something Else production. Produced by Lawrence Bassett, with assistance from Steve Ackerman, Harriet Wells, Ella MacLeod, and a man who made a lot of fans very happy by popping up on screens at our recent livestream event. Of course, it's Gully.